This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. All right, well, good evening. If, uh, Doctor, I, would, I wanted to give some consolation to Dr. Osborne this evening because I, too, have a handout. And it's very clear that I'm not old, not because of my age, but because I'm reading my talk from a device. So... <laughs> Now, I have been entrusted this evening with lecturing on the fourth way of St. Thomas's famous five. Mine is an unenviable task, frankly, since this is probably the argument most distasteful to modern sensibilities and resistant to a friendly contemporary analysis. In fact, Father Brent last night or this morning said to me, you're lecturing on the fourth way, right? That's the one we usually skip. <laughs> And to that end, when I was reviewing my lectures on the five ways, I realized that my, uh, my fourth way discussion was rather hand wavy, so I had to update it for this time. So, but despite the fact that this particular argument seems to be distasteful, and it's distasteful in part because it seems platonic. After all, St. Thomas begins by saying, well, this is a proof from grades of being, which sounds awfully mystical and platonic. But yet, there is something beautiful to it, and something fundamentally Aristotelian, as we will see. And you know, Father Lawrence Dewan, who has been mentioned several times already, um, actually thinks that this is one of his, says that this is one of his favorites. He says that, um, that the fourth and the fifth ways are the most satisfying, and that St. Thomas concludes with we, in each of these, in both the fourth and the fifth way. For he says, this we call God. Not just that this everybody calls God, but this we call God. The God presented by the fourth way is something which for all beings is the cause of being and goodness and every perfection. We are surely presented with a being described as maximally a being, which is a creative source. So says Father Duan. So it's worth our time to kind of look at this argument and see not only its beauty, but its, its convincing power. So my goal today is simple, to try to make the argument comprehensible. My goal is not to put to rest all of your questions, but rather I want to contextualize it as best as I can in a short amount of time to show, to show you that if we grant St. Thomas some very basic principles from Aristotle's physics and metaphysics, we should see that this, this argument is not only valid, but sound. So let's just review the text of the argument, which you have on your handout on page one. And so St. Thomas says this, the fourth way is taken from the gradation to be found in things. Among beings, there are some more and some less good, true, noble, and the like. But more and less are predicated of different things according as they resemble in their different ways something which is the maximum, as a thing is said to be hotter, according as it is more nearly resembles that which is hottest, so that there is something which is truest, something best, something noblest, and consequently something which is uttermost being. For those things that are greatest in truth are greatest in being as it is written in Metaphysics, Book 2. Now, the maximum in any genus is the cause of all in that genus, as fire, which is the maximum heat, is the cause of all hot things. 
Therefore, there must also be something which is to all beings the cause of their being goodness and every other perfection. And this we call God. End quote. Now, to try to help our analysis, I've reconstructed this on your handout into six premises. And I'm just going to review those premises uh, for those who don't have the handout and for our listening audience. So premise one, if some property is instantiated by degrees, then something must instantiate that property to the maximal degree. Premise two, property, the properties of good, true, noble, etc. are all instantiated by degree. Therefore, three, there is something that instantiates these properties to a maximal degree. If there is something that is maximally true, then there is something that is maximally being. Five, therefore, there is something that is maximally being. And we have six. Each maximum in any genus is the cause of all in that genus. And we conclude at seven, therefore, the maximum being is the cause of all beings, and this we call God. Now, you may have some issues with the way I've reconstructed it, but I think at, it, at the very least generally shows the flow of the argument and the important points. And it indicates to us which premises St. Thomas is presuming in this argument and the ones that we need to kind of look at in order to accept the validity of this. These are premise one, two, four, and six, of course. Now it's premises four and six that our contemporaries usually find most difficult to swallow. They may be a little bit weirded out by the first one, but when they see four and six, they begin to scoff loudly. However, however, I think that if we understand, especially premise one, in its context more clearly, we will actually be able to see why, not, uh, why four and six are actually easier to swallow. So I'm going to take a little bit of time to look at premise one in more detail and then we'll look at the others in detail too, but I'm, I'm going to spend an awful lot of time just on the first one. So that's a warning. So again, the first premise that we we're looking at today, if some property is instantiated by degree, then something must instantiate that property to a maximal degree. So this is not an entirely crazy premise to start with. It's just mildly unintuitive. And, but with a certain amount of explanation, most people are willing to grant it. But here, I want to try to understand the notion of more and less and place it in its properly Aristotelian context. And for Aristotle, it's important to think, he, he begins his discussion of more and less in the, his book of the categories in chapter six, where he's talking about quantity. But he brings up more and less in his discussion of quantity to say more and less are not quantitative uh, properties. And that is important. And part of the reason why he says that is because more and less property, things that are more and less have contraries. Whereas for him, numbers don't have contraries. The reason for that will, or is for another time. But this notion that more and less demand contraries is going to be important to see. But so Aristotle then says in that chapter, and this is quote one on the back of your handout. But... Might someone say that the many, this is the more, is contrary to few or large to small? None of these, however, is a quantity, he says. They are relatives, for nothing is called large or small just in itself, 
but by reference to something else. For example, a mountain is called small, and yet a grain of millet, large. Because one is larger than other things of its kind, while the other is smaller than other things of its kind, end quote. The reason why I want to emphasize this is because when we think of more and less as necessarily having a contrary, what he's saying is that anything that is more or less something is an intermediate, is an intermediate between two extremes. And so that's the definition of more and less that he's using in premise one. But there's a greater reason why we need to focus in on the contrary aspect to this. Because for Aristotle, and also for Aquinas, contraries, the primary contraries, are always an opposition between having a property and its privation. All intermediaries are some sort of proportion of having that property and not having that property. And this is something that Aristotle proves or uh, talks about and tries to prove in Physics Book 1, Chapter 7, but that he goes into greater detail in Book 10 of the Metaphysics, specifically uh, Chapters 3 through 5, you find a lot, but it's all throughout Book 10 of the Metaphysics, where he focuses in on what contraries are, how they give rise to intermediates, and that the primary contraries are having a property and its privation. And so in, in, physics, in, the, in physics book one, chapter seven, Aristotle says that so contraries are a form and it's privation. So hold that in mind, because we want to we think about that a little bit more. Because then what this tells us is all that, all that Aquinas is saying here is that if we agree there are some things that are intermediates, then there is one property that is an extreme property of having a form, right? And this is what he's talking about here as the maximal degree. So that, if, so that um, if some property is instantiated by a degree, then something must instantiate the property to a maximal degree. And so let's then focus in on what this term maximal degree of having a property is. Having a property in a maximal degree is essentially having it in an unmitigated, unqualified sense or maybe we might be able to say a perfect sense. That is, an undiluted sense. And that's all that he really means right there. And the fact that this is what Aquinas is saying can be verified by looking at a very similar argument um, in the Questiones de Potentia, where Aquinas gives a very similar argument to what he does here in the fourth way. And that quote is the second one on the back of your sheet. And there he says, the second argument is that whenever something is found to be in several things by participation in various degrees, it must be derived by those in which it exists imperfectly from that one in which it exists most perfectly. Because where there are positive degrees of a thing so that we ascribe it to this one more and to that one less, this in reference to one thing to which they approach, one nearer than another. For if each one were itself competent to have it, the property, there would be no reason why one should have it more than another. Thus fire, which is the extreme of heat, is the cause of heat in all things hot. Now there is one being most perfect, most true, 
which follows from the fact that there is a mover altogether immovable and absolutely perfect, as, the, as philosophers have proved. Consequently, all other less perfect beings must need derive being therefrom. This is the argument of the philosopher in Metaphysics, Book 2, Chapter 1. So I read the whole quote there because it shows that the structure of the argument is very similar to the one that he gives in the fourth web. But the point I want to highlight at this, at this part, part is that the type, that the maximal degree just is having a property in a perfect or unmitigated, unqualified sense. But let's break that down even a little bit more. What could that mean? to have a property in an unqualified, unmitigated sense. I like to think of this in terms of color. So let's take the color blue. We have a variety of shades of blue. There might even be disgusting shades of blue like we talked about earlier. But there, in that case it was green, but today we're talking about blue because I, wanted, I need it to be a primary color. So blue, um, it's it's when we talk about blue just as blue, we're thinking about it in an unmitigated sense. But then we have all varieties of shades and hues. We have cobalt blue, which is a darker blue. That's how we distinguish cobalt blue from blue itself. Or we have, or I'm sorry, that, uh, or cobalt blue is a lighter blue. And then you have old French ultramarine, which is a darker blue. Or you might have a blue that is more towards the purple spectrum, or a blue that is more towards the yellow spectrum, uh, and that's more green-like. But in either, all of these cases, all shades and hues of blue are, have blue to a degree, but are mixed with other things, either with darkness or with lightness or with some other primary color. But they all have their blueness because of this primary unmitigated quality that we call blueness. So because there are all these shades of blue, there must be some unmitigated sense of blue that allows us to understand what these other shades are. That's the sense of maximal that we mean, simply an unqualified, unmitigated sense of a particular property. All intermediates have the contraries as part of their essence or definition. And so they require then that there be an unmitigated sense of this particular property. Now there are, some, there are many ways in which you can push back on my interpretation here or that you can push back upon Aristotle. But this at least, I'm arguing, is the sense in which Aquinas is understanding the term maximal. That when you have something that has a property to a more or less of a degree, then there must be some property that is, that just is that property without any mitigation whatsoever. And so if that's what we're understanding here, then premise one just seems obviously true from definition. If some property is instantiated by degree, then something must instantiate that property to a maximal degree. So then we move on to premise two. And here we say the properties of good, true, noble, etc., are all instantiated by degree. I'm not going to spend too much time arguing for this because we're supposed to grasp this particular premise in an intuitive way. And I think he's right. I think he's right to actually to allow us to or to require this of us, right? Most people won't actually go after this particular premise in this argument. At least most of the articles I read in preparing for today. 
Um, and here's one reason why. For instance, especially when it comes to the property goodness, most of us are willing to agree that there are degrees of good and badness in people, right? We don't want to say that there is absolute good and absolute evil. Most people that we want to talk, that we talk with out there want to talk about shades of gray between good and bad, right? Whatever you think of that, it at least tells us that most people think that there are degrees of goodness and, and badness. And so it's not far-fetched to say that there are degrees of truth. But just in case we need an example to see this intuition, we have an example from Aristotle, which is, on, which is quote three on the back of your handout. And I think that Aquinas, and Father Dewan pointed out that this is probably the text that Aquinas is drawing upon for this particular intuition. So Aristotle says here that he who thinks that four is five is not equally as wrong as he who thinks that it is a thousand. Therefore, if they are not equally wrong, obviously one is less wrong and so more right. Hence, if what is truer is nearer to what is true, there must be some truth to which the truer is nearer. All right, so there's, there's a lot actually to unpack there. But at least intuitively, it seems to make sense. Yes, some truths seem to be more true than others. Or at least some wrongs seem to be more wrong than others. So therefore, some things can be more true. We might think, well, why would, why would five be any more true than a thousand? Well, think about it this way. You know, if we can understand somebody making a calculation mistake, say, well, if I calculate two plus two equals five, maybe I just like miscounted along the way somehow. Or maybe I misheard you and thought you said two plus three. But like, it's really hard to explain how you get a thousand out of two plus two, right? You know, you can't, like, you can't even add zeros to that and get a thousand. So clearly there's something more going wrong there than the person who's just getting two plus two equals five. So that seems to indicate then that there are degrees of truth. So we're going to kind of accept that and then move on to some of the more controversial premises here. So premise four, which states that if there is something that is maximally true, then there is something that is maximally being. So it's interesting. This is where Aquinas gives us the citation to Metaphysics 2, also known as, also referred to today as Metaphysics Little Alpha, or if we want to be linguistically correct, Metaphysics Alpha Eliton. So this particular book of the metaphysics is cited by Aquinas, and I think that's important. But before I get to why it's important, um, I want to say that, first of all, there is a, the most popular way to try to show why St. Thomas is uh, allowed to have this premise is by connecting the truth of this premise to the theory of the transcendentals. If you accept the transcendentals, then premise four should just be obviously true for you. And this particular way of going about showing why we should accept number four is, ta is, is taken by such diverse personalities as Father John Whipple and Ed Fazer. Not usually the two that you pair in one breath, but there you go, they are one on this particular issue. So the idea behind this approach is that if the theory of transcendentals is true, then being and truth are convertible such that what you can say about truth can also be said about being. Now, this is definitely not wrong, but I don't know if it's helpful, um, to be frank. And I think that for the simple reason 
that premise six uses genus as part of its argument. And transcendentals are transcendental because they transcend genera. So it's kind of like, so there's something else going on here, I think. And so I think that the citation to metaphysics two is actually really helpful for understanding why Aquinas thinks that if there are degrees of truth, then there are degrees of being. And so for this, we have the last uh, quote on the back of your handout. So this is uh, Metaphysics 2, Chapter 1, and I think this is the part that he's thinking of. So Aristotle says, and this is Aristotle, but we know a truth only by knowing its cause. Now anything which is the basis of univocal predication about other things has that attribute in the highest degree. Thus fire is hottest and is actually the cause of heat in other things. Therefore, that is also true in the highest degree, which is the cause of all subsequent things being true. For this reason, the principle of things that always exist must be true in the highest degree, because they are not sometimes true and sometimes not true. Nor is there any cause of their being, but they are the cause of being of other things. Therefore, insofar as each thing has being, to that extent it is true. The key feature of the relationship I want to pull out here is in the A section there, so 4A on the handout. That truth for Aristotle, and therefore for Aquinas, is something that is caused by being. It's not just related to being, but truth is caused by being. And Father Whipple says that obviously what Aquinas means here is, is kind of a mental truth in the mind itself. And so, um, so here's an example, right? I have this enunciated concept in my mind. Socrates is sitting. The truth of that particular enunciation depends upon whether or not there is a person, Socrates, who is sitting at this particular moment, if I'm affirming it as true. So we might say something like this, right? Socrates was sitting in the Agora on December 5th, 401 BC. There's a fact of the matter about that. That's either true or false. But what makes that enunciation true is whether or not Socrates actually was sitting, actually did sit down in the Agora on the 5th of December in 401 BC. And so this is key, right? It's not just a correspondence between what's going on in the mind and what's going on in the world, but that what is going on in the world makes the, the, the propositions and the enunciations in the mind true. This is what Aristotle seems to be saying here. And, uh, and then the example of fire is also helpful, is, is a little bit is helpful here as well. Now, when I say that something is hot, right, I'm saying something about its composition. Now, why is that? Why, why if I say that something is hot, I'm saying something about its composition? Well, this has to do with the Aristotelian theory of chemistry, which, of course, which we affirmed earlier on today, is a little bit outdated, despite what our views on water are. <laughs> so fire here, right, fire is the source of heat, but fire is not the source of heat in the sense of the fire that we all love and know in our hearts or on our stoves, right? Fire 
is an element. It's kind of like a core core lepton, or maybe those tiny little strings in string theory. It's whatever it is, one of these most basic elements to which everything can be broken down. And what's interesting about these elements is that all the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water, each have what Aristotle calls primary qualities. And these are unmitigated qualities of either hot or cold, wet or dry. And each element has two of them. But Aristotle also says in De Generatione et Corruptione that um, each element, each of the elements is characterized by a particular unmitigated primary quality. And that fire is characterized by heat. So Aristotle and Aquinas point to heat here, as, fire as the source of heat, because fire just is the element that makes heat in a body. Why that is, we can go over at, at another time. I can go on ad nauseum about um, Aristotle's chemical theory. This is like the subject of chapters two and half of chapter three in my dissertation. So if you want, we can talk about it, maybe at another point. But for now, I'm going to kind of keep going. So the point here, right, fire is an element in Aristotelian physics. And so that we say that it is true that something is hot because it is composed of fire, or has fire as composing parts. And so what this thing is then gives us the truth about that thing, or it allows us to, or allows us to have a true concept in the mind. And then, this is, not, this is a little bit of an aside. It is interesting that later on in that passage from Metaphysics 2, right, that um, Aristotle then goes to talk about how you can have degrees of truth by degrees of, of actuality and being, right? That something that is contingent is less being than something that is necessary, and therefore truth about contingent things is less true than a truth about necessary things. But that's, so that's kind of the opposite there, what's going on here, because here he's saying that truth comes in degrees, because truth is caused by the way that things are, because truth is caused by being, if there are degrees in truth, then there are degrees in being. And then we have an example of how truth can track being. Being can make things true. And then there's a lot more here that we can kind of go back to some of those discussions we had in the first three ways, but I'm not going to rehash those here. We're going to keep moving because we have less and less time. So lastly, I want to talk about premise six, which normally you'd spend a lot more time on. I'm actually going to spend a little bit less time on because I think some of the work I've done, especially on premise one, can help us to understand what he means by what he means here in premise six. Because the big, the big question here is why on earth would he say each maximum in any genus is the cause of all in that genus? Why is a maximum in a genus the cause of everything in that genus? Well, here I think the discussion of contraries, this is where my discussion on contraries is going to pay dividends. Because the, when you have a genus that, or a, category, a group of things, that arises because you have a spectrum of, that, of contraries, right? You have a form, it's privation, and all of the intermediates. 
This, I think, is what Aquinas is saying is the genus. Anything that falls along the spectrum of form, privation, and anything in between. And if we recognize, right, that this is what he means by genus in this case, then it's easier to see why it is that the form, the maximal degree, is the cause of everything in between. Because the, the existence of the form allows for the reality of a privation. And only when you have a privation and a form in an unmitigated sense can you then have degrees between them. And so if that is what he means here, and I think that is what he means here, then it's pretty obvious how the maximal in any genus is the cause in that genus. It's a formal cause. There might be other ways in which you can cash it out, but at least that's what it looks like to me. And so that's it. That's why I spent so much time on premise one. So really, if that's true, then it's pretty easy to accept what he means by premise six. And so a lot then depends upon this notion of contrariety that we have in the first premise. So people get all wrapped up and worried about premise four and six, but really we need to be worried and focused on premise one and also premise two. Because once we grant St. Thomas those, the rest should follow, I think, fairly easily. So with that, I think I'm actually done fairly quickly. So um, I hope that makes this clearer for you. If not, we have the whole question and answer period left to us in which you can beat me up in whatever ways you want. I, I'm okay with that. We can take it. So with that, thank you. So, it's um, a good question, but that, this is part of why, so it's, it's hard to grasp what that means, but if we think of what he was saying in metaphysics too, right? Something is true because of the way that it is. So truth tends to be a property of enunciations or propositions that we hold in the mind, so that when uh, that proposition or enunciation is true, it's because of the way that things are in the world. So when we have a maximally true thing in the mind, or truth that we understand, it's because of the way that things are, exist in the world. There's a causal relationship here between the way things exist and the way that they are true. So, uh, and then if you accept that, then if you do, then, you know, if we go back to what we were talking about in the third way or even in the first and the second way, there are degrees of being that then kind of cause these truths so that some truths can be more true or other depending upon whether they're more being or other. So should it be read kind of backwards? Like, I mean, in this proof, he has there's a maximally true thing, therefore there is a yeah. something is maximum being. But sort of in reality, the way to think about it is there are things that are more or less being, and then that follows from that status of being, there are things that are more or less true. Yeah, so so I think that the argument that he's giving here in the fourth way, he's beginning with premises that are more familiar to us, which are truths in the mind. But that what you're saying is true about the way of the way that things exist, that they are in reality. Um, so that it really is more dependent on the way things are.
thanks for your talk. Um, yeah. Um, you mentioned the question of like whether Thomas is being uh, platonic in this argument or not, and uh, with the fourth quote you gave, it's kind of making me wonder whether Aristotle is being platonic or not. Yes. Um, particularly, I'm thinking of uh, in Book Six of the Republic when he talks about the form of the good being uh, not only the source of uh, knowable things, whose their their knowableness, but also um, the source of their being. And um, in the relation of the formal cause to efficient cause that was kind of touched on in the uh, presentation on the second way, it's also making me think of this. But I was wondering if you could just touch on that. Well, if you like that idea, you should read um, Lloyd Gerson's book, Aristotle and Other Platonists. Um, he makes an argument that Aristotle just is one of the Platonists, if you consider Platonists in the Big Ten view. But when people say that, that this is his most platonic, of arguments, it's because of this notion of degrees. And, and it's also because they know that he's, he's, he's read and is very fond of Dionysius the Areopagite, he's a Neoplatonist. But th actually this notion of contrariety and of degrees of being, though it is Platonic, though you can find it in Plato, um, in, in Plotinus and Plotinus' followers, um, he really takes the notion of Aristotelian contrariety and uses it then in the fashion that we see here to talk about degrees of being, especially in book one of the Enneads, chapter eight. Um, he goes into that in, in quite detail. He actually cites Aristotle's theory of contraries to talk about how evil is necessary once you get a first emanation from the one. Um, so, but see that, even though we consider that Neoplatonic, that's Plato plus Aristotle. So there are reasons why there's kind of like a blend here. And depending upon whether or not you think this is coming from Plato, or whether you think this is Aristotle's kind of addition to it, or whether you think that Aristotle just is one of the Platonists, you know, that's up for grabs. I'm not going to go into that. So. I think you did talk. Uh, so going to the discussion of whether something is true about degrees, I understand the argument you say that this this statements of four, or two plus two is five is closer to the truth than two plus two is a thousand. My question would be, is there, is the statement that two plus two equals four maximally true? Which is, are, are there statements that are more true than others and then they're on a, a certain like binary level that are all true? In which case, would you say that two plus two is, two plus two equals four is just as true as God? Or do you, do you see how I'm going Yeah, yeah. So, like, so, and that's, and I'm glad you brought that up. So, um, see, in the way that that particular argument was working, that Aristotle was giving us, um, he's trying to show that things can come to the wrong in degrees, and therefore they can become true to degrees. But then we have to figure out what is it that makes these things more or less true. And, uh, and I propose, based upon some of the readings of these texts here and others, that um, what makes the person who says five rather than a thousand as being more right is not just that five is closer to four, uh, but rather that at least presumably you have the person who gets five is at least trying to do that. Whereas the person who gets a thousand isn't even trying, right? So that there's more to the process of giving us the answer there that then makes that more true than less. And then if we go back to the idea, right, that being causes things to be true, we can then talk about how, yes, okay, two plus two equals four is true, 
But what we're talking about the truth there is the truth of the mathematics. So maybe there's something that's even more truer. So maybe if we're logicists with regards to mathematics, we'd say, well, the reason why 2 plus 2 is true is because I have a wonderful logical system that explains it. You know? Or maybe we're Platonists about mathematics and we say, well, the reason why 2 plus 2 is 4 is because there's a mathematical form in the Platonic heaven that tells us it's such. Right? But it, so it depends. But there are, it's, it's depending on the, uh, the value of the truth or the great maximality of the truth. Um, it depends upon what gives cause to it, what gives being to it. So a quick follow-up to that. So would you say yeah. that the way we've judged uh, say how true somebody is and how well their mind is, and is conforming with reality, so you, you, you can end up in a situation where two people can agree, I'm trying to find a good example, but two people can agree the same thing or assent to the same conclusion for vastly different reasons that one of them might have been using. You know, some, somebody could have said two plus two is four because if I raise two to the second power, it's, it's four now. Yeah. Which is not, it's not actually, they got to the right conclusion, but for the totally wrong reason. So would you say they have less truth in them than they got the right answer? Yeah, and so like here's maybe another way of putting it. Let's say we have a person who comes into existence, and that individual knows all the facts of the universe, every single one of the facts, but doesn't have any of the reasons why those facts are there. So you know everything that's true, maximally, but you don't necessarily know the connections between them. And so may, then you have another person who, let's say we give them all the facts of the universe, and then that person also has um, like you know, logical deductions, arguments for why those facts are the way they are. That person has a greater participation in truth than say the person who just knows all the facts. Or we'd say, uh, maybe we can even go with a concrete example. Let's say you have a, a mathematics class and you have one student who gets all the answers because got all the tests ahead of time, right? And you have another student who gets all the answers right because she knows all the formulas to get them. Clearly one of those has greater knowledge than others and the truth value of those results are greater, I would say. So I, I might have missed this, but I'm confused about how instantiation is working. Um, one, so if some property is instantiated by degree, then something must instantiate it in an actual degree. I can make sense of like an archetype still being the cause of the graded versions of the category without the maximal degree being instantiated. Like, I mean, what I, so like one way I think a property could be instantiated, like the property of catness could just be instantiated by the form of a cat being present in like some matter. Um, that's clearly not what instantiation means. But then what does it mean if nothing more than just if there's some abstraction that I can like grasp? Good. So um, I'm glad you asked that because I actually wanted to pull back on that. That was, you know, part of this was worked out in combination in, in in working with somebody else, and he suggested that I use instantiation. And as I was giving this talk, I realized I probably don't actually mean that. And here's the reason why: because you would you would think that if that were true, then I would think that Aristotle would hold that the elements like fire, earth, air, and water, you can go out in the universe and maybe find them, or at least possibly or maybe find them. But and so that you'd have an instantiation of these. I actually don't think Aristotle believes that. So. Rather, what I, what I want to say is that there has to be some undiluted version of this, of this property that when it comes in mixtures, um, causes those mixtures to be proportional. Now, maybe we could say, we can, if, we, if we could pull it out, it could be instantiated. 
but that factually it might not be. Um, so we might think of, so we think of blue, right? You know, blue is a primary color. No matter how you mix prime, no matter how how you mix secondary colors or any mixture of color, you can't actually get the primaries back out of it. That doesn't mean that there aren't these primaries there. Um, and so I think that the color example is, is something more like it's like living in a world where we have all these shades of blue, red, and yellow, and everything in between. Um, but we and we know that they are shades of blue, of blue, red, and yellow because there is a blue, red, and yellow. But because we live in a world where everything's mixed, we can't actually have them instantiated actually that there's a potency going on. Okay, so but like that's a serious problem for one that if by instantiated yeah. you mean possibly instantiated. Yes, so I need, I do think I need to fix this. Do you have any suggestions? Um, I just don't think the fourth state works. Okay. <laughs> I would like it to, I just don't know. I, mean, I, I could be wrong, but I think one way you might interpret it, or maybe people interpret this sometimes, is that in every genus there has to be this highest uh, form or highest species. So for instance, an animal, it's man, I don't know what it is in plants, but that's a, a more of a formal uh, distinction, saying there must be such a species. And then the instantiation in terms of the highest member of the transcendentals, uh, I don't know if maybe it's sometimes pure perfections, but maybe it's just the transcendentals, but the highest member of that, there are reasons because of the kinds of things that go on that make you go to, because it's not a species that we're talking about, we're talking about one individual, so it's a different kind of, of, of mood. Because that's sometimes an objection, right? Is yeah. That the objection is that, I think, that grant that there's a highest member, that there's a highest species, but that doesn't prove that of each genus, that doesn't prove that there is a highest being, namely God. And then people respond to that by saying being, goodness, nobility are different from things like uh, being a moralist or the damned. I, I think that's often how it goes. I could be wrong. No, that sounds about right. Um, but that's, I, I think that's definitely in a later discussion than what, maybe, than what St. Thomas would be using, but it, to make sense of it. I'm not a basketball person, but from my understanding, there is somebody named LeBron James who's very good at the game and arguably the best. In what sense could we say that he is the cause of other basketball players? We don't want to say that, and we want to say that God is the cause of LeBron James as being good. It seems like we would have to say something along the lines of God is the best basketball player. <laughs> 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 no, no. For sure. But um, so th there are really kind of two questions there. The first one about LeBron James. So really, LeBron James on this account is more like the fire we find in the hearth, right? It's the hottest thing we generally come across, but that's definitely not fire in the sense of the element of the elements. So in the primary instantiation, in the primary kind of uh, source of that. So LeBron is not the maximal but he's the closest to the maximal that we get in the basketball league at, at present, all right? Whether or not you can instantiate the best basketball player of all times, that's a different thing. 
But if, if you could, right, if you could, right, then everybody would be put, would be graded on a scale of goodness or badness in basketball in relationship to that particular individual. Um, the, then the second one, right, would God be the best basketball player? We might, or maybe we can translate it back into the elemental stuff. Is God the hottest being ever? And, <laughs> and there, I'm going to pull back to the, you know, the, the uh, metaphysics two quote, right? In that um, things that are contingent are, have less being than things that are necessary, right? And so, in a way, right, those things are more being others. And, and therefore, God is going to, even though God doesn't have all the properties down below, right, he is the cause of all good things that exist. Um, and so just by being the cause, he is the most maximal in being, right? So you, any, any other sort of being is being hot, being a basketball player. It's being in a qualified sense. But here, if we're going to have maxim, something maximally true, it's also going to have to be maximally being. And if it's maximally being, right, then it's not any kind of being that's in a qualified sense, like being hot or being a basketball player. Um, if I'm not mistaken, later in the Summa, um, Aquinas says that God doesn't fit into any genus, but like if God is like the maximum of truth or like the maximum of being, then like how can you not be in a genus but then also be the maximum of every two genera? Yeah. Um, maybe I'm missing something here. But... No, you're not missing something. It's just that that so that that's a good question. And what he what he he actually begins to address that only in question thirteen of the Primitives when he starts talking about divine names. So uh, like here, I think he's just trying to he's using it the genus very loosely. Um, and that we're going to need to get an understanding of, of analogical predication uh, to understand how that's at work here. Yes, go for it. Yeah. So, yeah, Please. In question three, or five, right, when he asks whether God is in a genus, he distinguishes between being in a genus as a species within a genus, right, and being contained in a genus as the principle right, of a given genus. And when he turns to the second, so first he says God's not going to be a species. God isn't going to be contained in any one genus as principle because he is the principle of everything that is. <laughs> so it's, it's, when, he, when he argues that God is not in a genus, um, in the sense of a principle of a, of a certain genus, right? It's not, the, the, the claim is actually God is the principle of everything, right? Rather than, you know, um, just being associated with one genus or another. So I think, and that's compatible with the on the fourth way, right? If God is. The supreme being that is the cause of being and of every perfection for every other thing. Um, he is the maximum, right? With respect to every sort of thing. Um, does, that, does that help? Yeah. So, using the basketball example, does that mean that since God is the cause of all basketball players, like he's the principle behind Jesus of basketball players? Go ahead, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, Thomas, so this is really the topic of question four of Article 2, right? Whether God is universally perfect. And Thomas does make an unqualified, has as an unqualified conclusion there, right? The perfections of all creatures are in God. 
first in a more imminent mode. And then later you get the clarification, not all perfections belong to God essentially, some belong to God only virtually, right? or in his understanding. So is God literally or properly the best basketball player? No, right? But does whatever perfection in being a basketball player is, does have to be in God somehow if God is the cause of excellence? There's an objection by one of the atheists that was like, oh, the maximal degree of like knowingness and like, I don't know, God, like <laughs> something like that. Do you know yeah, no, so like, yeah. They'll, they'll, what they'll say is that um, if God is the maximal of everything, right, then he's not just the maximal of every good property, but also the maximal of every evil property. So if he's, so he would be the maximal of every, every good smell and also the maximal of every bad smell. But I think what, what the things that we've been talking about can show why that's a, uh, that, that wouldn't make sense under this context. It, partially because of the things uh, that Dr. Carl was just saying, but also because uh, of the contrariety thing, right? So that all maximally evil things are just deprivations, privations of the good things on this account. So, so to be maximally smelly just means to have the privation of good smells. So God is certain by, by the contract that we're working with, God is, can't possibly, even, even though he can't possibly be the greatest of smelling things, he certainly can't be the greatest of, of bad smelling things. Yeah, so it would, it would go that way, and, it's probably, and again, it's probably not wrong participation in that way, but we would want to try to fit, cash it out and figure out what exactly it, it means. But certainly participation is, is a helpful, it's helpful for understanding that. Could you kind of explain what, what talking about it as participation would mean? Yeah, so, uh, so for Aquinas, in, um, so he's got this work that's a commentary on um, a work written by Boethius, where he says that there are three different ways or modes in, uh, in which we come across participation. So one of them is, um, is sort of a, a logical way. So, um, so he thinks that the thing that's common in all cases is just etymological, right? So uh, x participates in y just in case x takes a part of y, right? And then how we cash out what it means to um, like take a part of is gonna be different in each of the three cases. So one is logical. Um, so you can think of like um, how everything that falls under a species is like a part of the species. So all of us are human beings. So we are all part of humanity. Um, and then all species are things that fall under genera. So they're all uh, sort of, they all take part in the genus. Um, that's a logical kind of participation. There's a a compositional kind of participation, um, which he illustrates with the way that um, matter takes part in substantial form or a subject takes part in some accident. Um, and that strikes me as the case that's most plausibly going on here. 
Um, the third mode of participation is the way that an effect uh, takes part in its cause. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be whatever it is, it's going to be one of those. So um, a couple of things here. Just having a property doesn't necessitate that there are degrees of that property, but when there are degrees of that property, you know that there is a complete absence of it. Um, so, it just have, so just having God doesn't necessitate um, that there is also a hell. But hell is not really the total deprivation of it, right? Everything that exists in hell still has existence. Um, part, of, part of the goodness that's still allowed to the damned um, that they can continue to exist. Uh, so they actually don't, they're not deprived of being to the maximal sense, but actually what they are, uh, what they do have are only partial participation, partial sharing in the life of God. And it's that partial sharing rather than a full participation that is hellish to them for some reason. But that's, that's getting a little bit more into theology, not just an Aristotelian scholar. So. <laughs> I can put on my theology hat another time, but we have time for one more question. Um, uh, yeah, so I really liked your uh, call as well, and I was just curious. So it seems like that. Sorry, it seems like there would be a maximal degree of virtue, and Aristotle talked about that in the Nicomachean Ethics, but. I'm curious as to, it's also like, you know, obviously it's on a spectrum, but you're aiming for the intermediate to achieve the maximal degree in that case. And I'm just wondering what allows for that discrepancy within like Aristotelianism as a whole. All right, so think about it, so uh, good. So remember, right, so virtue is a mean, but it's a mean between two vices. And really what's that saying, what, what that is saying is you can kind of be deprived of that, of that perfection in two, at least two different ways. So think of it like this. Zero is kind of like the, um, the fullness of number in a way, in that you can have plus numbers and minus numbers along the number line. Only once you have kind of a standard that you establish as zero, can you then have greater than zero and less than zero. But here, in this case, it would be kind of zero being the maximal of whatever, whatever it is instantiating the unity that creates number. Um, and so likewise with virtue, you have a perfection that then you can talk about having that perfection to degrees one, in one way or another, um, depending upon in what ways you kind of fall away from that perfection. So 
So if you have courage, right, you can fail on that account by either being too rash or by being too cowardly. But courage is having just the right amounts of, of boldness in the face of the danger of death. Um, and so even though we consider that a mean between two extremes, it's really the having of the virtue in the most perfect way could be considered uh, the extreme of having the form itself. And both of those um, vicious extremes are really just ways in which you can fall away to one degree or another from that perfection. So you would say that um, those poles would be more like privations in a coding sense? Exactly. Okay. Thank you, Father Ambrose.